Mighty God and everlasting Father, we come before you asking that you administer to us your word. As we read this chapter in the book of Genesis, as we ponder its meaning for us, we ask, O Lord, that you would make Christ known to us. We ask, Father, that you would give your grace and your power in the Spirit. Help us in our hearing, help in the preaching. Let us, O God, accordingly worship you as we look to the Word this morning and desire more of it. Let the Word cleanse us. Let it wash us. Let us see Christ clearly and powerfully and wonderfully in the Scripture that we're reading this morning. And we so ask that you administer that to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 10. Follow along as I read through all of these wonderful Old Testament names. Now this is the genealogy of the sons of Noah. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth were Gomer, Magog, Medai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Togamar. The sons of Javan were Elishash, Tarshish, Ketim, and Dodanim. From these, the coastland peoples of the Gentiles were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. The sons of Ham were Cush, Mizraim, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush were Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Raama, and Sebteka. And the sons of Raama were Sheba and Vidan. Cush begot Nimrod, and he began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From that land he went to Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ur, Kala, and Reason between Nineveh and Kala, that is the principal city. Mizraim begot Ludim, and Amim, Lehabim, Nestuhim, Pathrusim, and Kaslahim, from whom came the Philistines and the Kaphtorim. Canaan begot Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, the Jebusite, the Amorite, and the Girgashite, the Hivite, the Archite, and the Shinite, the Arvidite, the Zemorite, and the Hamathite. Afterwards, the families of the Canaanites were dispersed, and the border of the Canaanites was from Sidon as you go toward Gerar, as far as Gaza. Then, as you go towards Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim, as far as Lasha. These were the sons of Ham, according to their families, according to their languages, and their lands, and in their nations. And children were born to Shem, the father of the children of Eber, the brother of Japheth, the elder. The sons of Shem were Elam, Asher, Arphaxed, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram were Uz, Hul, Gether, and Math. Arphaxed begot Salah, and Salah begot Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided. And his brother's name was Joktan. 
Jotin begot Almadad, Sheles, Hazarmavath, Jera, Hadaran, Uzel, Dikla, Obol, Abimael, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan, and their dwelling place was from Misha as you go towards Sephar, the mountains of the east. These were the sons of Shem, according to their families, according to their languages, in their lands, according to their nations. These were the families of the sons of Noah, according to their generations, in their nations. And from these, the nations were divided on earth after the flood. Genealogies. Oftentimes, when Christians meet their genealogies in their daily Bible reading, they tend to skip them, because genealogies are just a long list of names. However, this particular genealogy is important. As a matter of fact, every genealogy that's in the scripture is exceedingly important. They are placed there by the inspiration, by the carrying of the Holy Spirit. They are the inspired word. They are as important as other parts of the word. You will hear some people say, well, it's more important to know Romans chapter 5 than it is to know Genesis chapter 10. Well, tell God that. God decided to put Romans chapter 5 in there as well as Genesis chapter 10. And the instruction that we can receive from Genesis chapter 10, this long list of names, is very important. That leads us right into things like Romans chapter 5 and Galatians chapter 2 and 3 and Philippians chapter 4. We find the question the question that should be on our minds when we read the genealogy. Do you know what the question is? You're reading along in Genesis. You've just finished the oracle of Noah in chapter 9, and you hit chapter 10, which doesn't make any sense because it's in the wrong place. It actually should be in chapter 11, and chapter 11 should be in chapter 10 because Moses has placed something here where it talks about the nations that were separated. Well, when did the nations separate? They separated in chapter 11. So why would he put it here after chapter 9, before chapter 11, something that didn't take place until after chapter 11? Well, because he wants you to get a point, and there should be a question in your mind. At the end of Noah's oracle, we should be asking, is there any hope? The reader of Genesis at this point is left with the people of the earth hopelessly scattered across the face of the earth, divided from one another and from God. What will happen next? The context is very important because this particular chapter is a prequel. It's telling us what has happened and chapter 11 is going to tell us how it happened. The oracle of blessing and cursing in the last chapter tells us why it was important to identify the surrounding nations. The account of the dispersion at Babel tells us how the nations came to be scattered and divided. That's what we're going to look at next week. All the nations came from one man, though, Noah. But they were not all like him. Patterns are very important. 
And the way that the scriptures are set up, the way that the actual texts are set up, are very important. The arrangement of this table is into three groups. And it's headed up by Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, some of the names on the list are clearly designated as places. Babylon, Erech, Akkad, Kalna, Shinar, where the tower was built in the plains of Shinar. Nineveh, Rehoboth, Kala, and Reason. These are all names of cities. Other, other place names are listed without being clearly designated by a geographical location, although their use suggests that they are, like Sidon normally represents the city in Phoenicia, and Magog is elsewhere in the land of Gog, and Parshish, and some of these others are other places that are locations in the Bible. So, not only are there names here, like Shem, Ham, and Japheth, but there are also city names, names of places, names of where these families went and what ultimately became of them. And the readers in Moses' day would have keenly been aware of the names that we read, as well as the names of these cities. The names include names of tribes, cities, inhabitants, countries, and individuals. Now, this doesn't nullify the possibility that there were actually were ancestors or founders who descended from the sons of Noah, and they were survivors of the flood ultimately through the children of Noah, and then built these cities and named them after themselves. But the idea is that the passages are set up in such a way so that you know what happened next. You know the people and the area, and the cities, the places. Each one of these sections is separated by, as we had talked about before, the Toledot, the genealogy. The summary describes the results. The table is not simply concerned with a simple list of the sons of ancestors. Rather, it's concerned with tracing what became of them. And that's why there are certain commentaries set in the midst. Now, in looking at this passage, I'm not going to draw out a very long sermon on the genealogy. Actually, when sermons are put together, you want to say what the text said and you want to be done. You don't want to just simply add for the sake of making a sermon longer. You want to point out God's point in the text. Well, the point of the text is that the sons of Noah are divided. And they're divided by means of anthropological, linguistic, political, and geographical criteria. They all dwelt in a certain area. And for that reason, the table includes the names of the people, the tribes, the country, the cities, all of those things. And the order of these elements is not always the same. And you can look there and you can observe the difference, but the conclusion of Genesis 10 is that it's structured as an arrangement of what happened to everyone so that they were divided into the nations of the ancient world. And Moses is just emphasizing the development of those nations because it was important to Israel. And we're going to see why. Now, the outline of the genealogies, we have the descendants of Japheth. He settled in the north and the west and became the founders of the Greek and the Scythian tribes. Then the next section is the descendants of Ham. And he settled in the area of Egypt and Canaan 
And from these tribes came the founders of the great cities of the east. Nimrod founded the great cities. And the descendants of Mizarim were the tribes of northern Africa. There was an expansion by these men. Canaan produced the Canaanite tribes in the land that were promised to Israel. And then we have the descendants of Shem, the ancestor of Eber, settled in the eastern land in the region of the Persian Gulf. And the descendants of Shem formed the major tribes of that eastern Gulf region. All of this would be exceedingly important to Israel because they were going to go into these lands and they were going to be wandering for a time. These were the divisions of all the nations. <clears throat> so what do we do with this table of nations? Why is it such... How, how could it be important to us today in any way? <clears throat> well, let's look at the doctrine from the text. The human race, although the human race was united by its origin, is divided by language, territory, and politics because of vanity. The human race is united by virtue of its beginnings from one family, but through vanity, they separated. Separation is a bad thing. Really, all of these people, it's one big family. You always hear people say, you know, he is of a different race than I am because we have Chinese people and Japanese people and black people and Korean people and African people and American people and English people, all of these different kinds of people. People think that it's all these different races. Well, no, there's one family, one race. All men are descended from Noah, who was descended from Adam. The human race is one family. Why then are there the blackest blacks, the most oriental of orientals, and the more, most Caucasian of Caucasians? How could they be so different and look so different? What, what could it have been? Well, as we find out next week, it was as a result of sin that such things happened. And God divided the lands and the peoples right down to their genetics. We'll talk about the Pundit Square next week that demonstrates that from to, from Noah, you could have the blackest black and the whitest white. The human race is hopelessly divided by language, race, territory, and politics, all of which raise the question of the cause of such division, sin, specifically self-righteousness. We recall Ham. Ham, as we saw last week, mocked his father. Why? Because he was basically waiting for his father to stumble. And after his father stumbled, he demonstrated, at least in his mind, that he thought he was more holier, that God had rejected Noah, and that it was Ham's duty to proclaim his sin publicly. Division parallels hopelessness and apostasy. Ham, the apostate, instead of uniting his family together, wanted to divide it as a result of self-righteousness and vanity. It is the opposite of unity. That is why apostasy and excommunication is a bad thing. People are cast out 
instead of unified. Now what happened is that they are under Ham's lineage. There was a collective apostasy that was epitomized in the work of one named Nimrod. Nimrod took possession of the highest point of honor and became a hero of sorts. We don't hear of Noah's good works here. Moses doesn't record anything that Noah did, but he does record Nimrod's self-love. And he does record Nimrod's boasting. And as a result, he is infamous. He says, it says that he was a hunter for God. Calvin remarks that it's either he was a superior hunter or that euphemistically Moses is trying to tell us that he violently seized on his prey. Nimrod, in any case, is set up in the text by Moses as a furious man, likened to beasts more than a man and set against him. The expression that we find in the text where it says he was a mighty hunter before the Lord, well, that's not a compliment. It's a boast. As if Nimrod tries to raise himself up high to make himself great. And in the land of Shinar, in which Nimrod was one of the ones who set that expansion, the chief one, we find the Tower of Babel. Nimrod, like Satan, wanted to raise himself up. And in his vain self-confidence is the great sin that affected all of his ancestors. Nimrod's empire surrounded Babel, his center, and even other great wicked cities like Nineveh. Two of the most evil groups of rebellious sinners ever to set foot on God's earth, Babylon and Nineveh, were both founded by Nimrod, he who is of self-love. And the truth of that will be vividly seen in his self-exaltation once we hit chapter 11. The largest nations of the world, then, are bound up in spiritual slavery to their own self-flatteries and their own self-righteousness, which is exactly what Nimrod's problem was. Collectively, under the forced labor, Nimrod set cities up in his name and the world was thrown into spiritual rebellion as a result another thing that you should keep in mind other than the self-flattery or vanity of the divided nations is that no hope will ever come from powerful nations warring against one another hope comes from the sovereign lord who controls the nations and who will move nations to make room for his chosen people. The divided nations all stand in some relation to the divine plan for blessing or cursing, as witnessed by chapter 9 in the Oracle of Noah, and has a deliberate emphasis on this table of nations. God so orders the path of men that even where they live and where they work, are sovereignly set up by his divine providence. That's why, just as it was said with Peleg, that the lands were divided. God divided the lands. 
Numbers 34.12, this shall be your land with its surrounding boundaries. He tells them. Deuteronomy 32.8, when the Most High divided their inheritance to the nations, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the children of Israel. God did that. Acts 17.26, and he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell in all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. That's what God does. A man, he plans his way. But Proverbs in 16.9 says, But the Lord directs his steps. Even the talent of men, their giftedness in their own work, is something that God sets up in them. Exodus 28.3 So you shall speak to all who are gifted artisans, whom I have filled with the spirit of wisdom. He says the same in Exodus 36.2 and here we have in Genesis 10.32, These were the families of the sons of Noah, according to their generations, in their nations, and from the nations were divided on earth after the flood. God did that. God divided them. God controls the nations to bring about the coming of the Redeemer, the coming of the Messiah. And that is the practical application of every genealogy you find in Scripture, that the coming Messiah is coming. And that is why the commentary in Genesis 10.1 is, quote, after the flood. After the destruction comes the redemption. Men are constantly reminded of rebellion and its effects. But God is always working towards his end. What will happen next? That's what Moses wants you to think. What is going to happen next? Where is the hope? Well, genealogies are listed to aid the reader in transitions as to what will happen next. That God is sovereignly working out his plan to bring about the Redeemer. Remember Noah's father? Remember what he said about Noah? Through this one, we will have rest. Remember some of the things that Moses pointed out? And the ark rested. Noah means that very thing. So God controls all of these nations, and he does so, and he places these genealogies in here, so that a light would go off in our mind, looking to see what will happen next. The nations are exalted for a time, and there are these great cities that Moses records as a result of what Nimrod did, Babylon and Nineveh, for example, but their glory is transient and vanishing in comparison to what God is doing in and through the Messiah. Some might think that upon first look, God created the world for great nations, because most of the time, great nations are the great nations. I don't know of a great Christian nation, a great Christian country. Nimrod thought that that's why the world was here. Sinners will go about their lives believing that they need to leave their mark or leave their accomplishment, their testimonies, as if they can flatter themselves without ever answering for their actions. Deuteronomy 29.19 says, And so it may not happen when he hears the words of this curse that he blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall have peace even though I follow the dictates of my heart. God specifically raises up the witness against them, as though the drunkard could be included with the sober, as God says. It won't be. Maybe Nimrod thought that this, all, this was all that there was. There wasn't anything else. It was just this earth. So maybe he was so impressed 
with what he could accomplish, that he raised up things so people would remember him, and that would be his legacy. Maybe he so suppressed the truth of God, though Noah was alive at this time, that he gained more press than Noah did. He just became more popular than Noah did. I mean, Noah was alive at this time. He lived for over 900 years. But we don't find anything about Noah here. We find the vain self-flattery of the wicked. God allows the world to flourish, to be an example of his sovereign power to bring about that which will be permanent, which is the coming of the Redeemer. The world is divided by those who fill their belly and those who fill their spirits. Filling the belly is satisfying the passions temporarily. But Nimrod was not content with one house or one street or one town or one city or one country. He had to continue to satiate himself. He was not even content with being human. He wanted to be divine, which is what happened in chapter 11, as we'll see. It's no wonder that people go and visit the achievements of man on vacation like the Great Pyramids, which are a testimony to Ham's curse and Nimrod's self-righteous vanity. You see the way that they construct just the pyramids themselves. They're created in a way to preserve life. But the rock is worn, and in time the rock will wear out. It's not permanent. The transient life is all that the debased mind has passions for and desires. But the Christian has to make a conscious effort to separate himself from that which is temporary and fleeting and hold on to that which is eternal. Genesis chapter 9 and Romans chapter 9 attest to the reality. That's what was Noah's curse on Canaan. It's fleeting. You're going to be a servant to your brothers. They grew to be big, though. They grew to be a great city. They grew to be a great country and a great force. For all intents and purposes, it seems that Shem and Japheth were really slaves to Canaan, to Ham. What the Israelites would have been thinking, they have to go into Canaan and try to defeat them, this massive city. But it's paralleled much like to Paul's demonstration of why God raised up Pharaoh to show his mighty power. I mean, the reprobate exist for the example that they stand to those who are saved. In the same way with Noah's righteousness and Canaan's unrighteousness or Pharaoh's unrighteousness and Paul's righteousness in the Redeemer. Genesis 9 and Romans 9 attest to that same reality. That which is temporary is fleeting and the permanent is what counts. Moses wants us to understand that even though Shem and Japheth didn't build these great cities, their genealogical line is set and it's set because the Redeemer is coming. And God is dividing the nations. And he's doing something specific. Think about how Israel would have felt reading this genealogy, knowing that the nations were divided, but God was raising them up as a nation. So let's apply it to ourselves. In the midst of a divided world, the covenanted community 
is bound together by God's providence through Jesus Christ. It is a divided world. The people of God until the end of the age will live in this world with wicked men. Until the return of Christ or until their death, we are going to live among wicked men. And all around us we see the effects of man's vanity and his sin. The bigger buildings that they build, the greater things that they create, the popularity that they have, in much the same way as Lot, as we'll ultimately get to, our souls are vexed as we live in the wickedness of the world, as we see the nimrods everywhere. Christians are really to be preservatives. They're to be witnesses to the realities of God's promises. Because that's what Genesis 10 is about. God is not slack in concerning his promise. Rest from sin will come, but it's not going to come until the end. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. And this presses us to find commonality among God's people and his plan and be satisfied with the eternal aspects of salvation, not the temporary fixes of happiness that the world offers. Nimrod was never satisfied. He went from place to place and town to town and built and built. And he was great in his own eyes. The mind of the Christian, then, must be bound to the eternal blessedness which comes from being united with Jesus Christ in salvation. It's within the covenanted community of God's people that such unity is going to occur. And God brings his people together from being scattered, which is the entire point of the reversal of the Tower of Babel in Acts chapter 2. Everybody always thinks that Acts chapter 2 is somehow all about getting this big spiritual power from the Holy Spirit speaking in tongues. Acts chapter 2 is the reversal of Babel. It's taking the scattered people all across the world and bringing them together in their respective tongues to glorify God. And that is what Moses gives us a taste of in this genealogy. It's the exact same thing. The nations are scattered, but God is going to bring his people together to worship him. Where were the Israelites? They were in the middle of the wilderness. What was Moses' plea to Pharaoh? Let my people go so that they might worship me. The covenanted community is bound together by God's providence. And the redemptive answer to sin found in the genealogical line of God's chosen people is through the Messiah. Abraham is going to be chosen from among what? The nations. So the covenant community doesn't need to be alarmed that there are so many nations covering the earth. Instead, Genesis chapter 10 teaches we should have hope. God's redemptive plan is working out in the midst of the rebellion of the nations. Not only the readers of Moses' Genesis narrative would have questions of hope due to the division of the nations, but God's very promises are brought into question even throughout the coming ages. Did you know that the New Testament in commenting on the Old Testament, deals with that particular issue about wondering if God's promises are really coming to pass. Remember what Peter says in chapter 3 and verse 9? The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He's talking to the church. He's not long-suffering toward us, that's the church. 
not willing that any of us, that's the church, should perish, but that all, that is, that any of the us, should come to repentance. Well, what is, what is God saying? People were saying, where is God? Where is Jesus? Hey, Jesus left. Is he really coming? Is he really going to consummate the ages? Look at the fallen world and all the wickedness that's going on. Maybe God's promises really aren't as true as you think. But Peter says, no, God's promises are. Moses is saying in Genesis chapter 10, God's promises are true. And God is doing something specific. But he's not going to come before he accomplishes everything that he needs to accomplish. All of the people of God will be saved and none are going to perish until God finishes everything that he needs to do in saving his elect from the four corners of the world. And then he will come and he will fulfill all of his promises. God promised to enlarge Japheth's lands and so he did. And so much that he ordered history for the coming of the Christ. Remember, we have to remember that the nations are in the hands of God. God's promises are sure. And Romans 15.8 says, Now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God to conform to the promises made to the fathers. And for, uh, 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, For all the promises of God in him are yes and amen to the glory of God through us. Jesus is the fulfillment of Genesis 10. Of what Moses wants you to ask, now what? What happens next? Is there hope? The covenant community relies on the kingship of Christ and his work for their daily sustenance and spiritual power, not on the feats of men, not on the building of buildings. One can have either Nimrod as a hero or they can have Christ as a hero. Nimrod was a heroic figure among the people and they followed him. And in imitating the hero, the nations followed him into rebellion instead of following Japheth and Shem and Noah into righteousness. So you ask, who do you want to emulate? Where are your heroes? Where is your mind? What do you want to follow? That which is transient and self-flattering and vain or that which is permanent under the headship of Christ? The covenant community comes together to unite under the banner of the kingship of Christ's spiritual kingdom that will one day be set in the midst of the physical here on earth. And it's not that Christ is not ruling and reigning now. He most definitely is. Moses points that out as well. God divides the nations. He's in control. He is the king. It is, though, that he will one day mix the physical and the spiritual together so as to renew the earth again by fire and bring all things visible under his visible rule for all eternity. There will be no more Nimrods in those days, jockeying for position, building buildings, building cities. There will be no more vain self-flattery of the wicked, and all God providentially set in motion will come to pass and continue into eternity, and it will all be fulfilled. Christ, then, from Moses' perspective, the Redeemer to come, is the one that fulfills everything that God promised the patriarchs. And is the fulfillment of everything God worked out providentially through the rebellious nations. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all attest to it. It's how they start. It's how they press their Gospels. 
Matthew chapter 122. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which is spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Jesus comes. Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Luke 1.1, 1, 1, inasmuch as they have taken to hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us. John, for these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. Really, then, the heart of the passage is to comfort the reader to know that even in the midst of the nations rising up and rebelling against God, even in the midst of the wickedness of Egypt, of Canaan, of Babel, of Nineveh, God is in control and ordering his plan until the fulfillment of the ages occurs, and that is Christ. There is hope in Christ amidst the division of the nations, the Redeemer. Men divide against one another, but Christ unites. Hope, then, is what we set our minds on, which is Moses' point. What will happen next? Hope in God. The hope set out in the genealogies and in the covenant fulfillment is what our eyes should be set upon. Genealogies are important. Hope, then, is the expectation or fulfillment of success. Will God succeed? That's almost a silly question. Of course he will. But the way that Moses sets this up is asking and pressing us to think that. Moses knows God is faithful and that he would bring to pass all that he promised in Genesis chapter 9. And so we see in this genealogy that the coming Messiah will ultimately not take the nations and divide them, but will bring them back, bring them together, and unite his people into an everlasting kingdom. All because we just read a few names. But Moses has a point. The Holy Spirit has a point for Genesis chapter 10. Meditate on that question. Is there hope? What will happen then next? Moses gives you the answer with this table of nations. He lets you see that there is a righteous providential rule of God that will one day bring about victory and unity in the Redeemer to come. Let's pray. Mighty Lord and everlasting one, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the genealogy that we always skip over when we read your word. We pray, Lord, that we would be more attuned and careful to see what it is that you would have us to understand simply by reading a list of names. You inspired that scripture and placed it in the canon. And we ask, O oh Lord, that you would bless us by it. Help us recall why it's there. Let us ponder the question of hope and the question of the coming Messiah, who, as we know, came and saved us and redeemed us and unites the covenanted community together no longer scatters them, brings them together under the common banner of salvation. People who would regularly not have come together if they were simply friends, maybe following a hero figure such as Nimrod, but Christ brings us together and unites us permanently in his grace, in his power, in his work. And we so ask that you would bless us in understanding these things, even from the perspective of Moses and the Israelites, in Genesis 10. And we so ask all of it in Jesus' name. Amen.
This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D, M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.